Well, I heard one individual, one spouse told me this morning as her husband was driving to church, she said her husband turned to her and said, I wonder what parable we're going to talk about today. Are you guys excited? We're going to talk about another parable. This guy was excited, so I hope you match his excitement. Uh, Before we dive into our parable this morning, though, I want to plug, we are a church that's about um, declaring and demonstrating the gospel to all people, neighborhoods, and nations. And so um, something unique about Madison, like 7,000 international students come to Madison to study. Uh, So we have an awesome opportunity to declare the gospel to the nations in our own neighborhoods. And so Brian and Kylie McGinn, they're not here in this service, um, but they were here first service. After this service in one of the classrooms in the back, they're just going to provide on-ramps for how you can engage with international students. Uh, And with these 7,000 internationals that come every year, the statistic is very low that these internationals will ever be welcomed into an American home. And what greater thing than for us as a Vine family, as believers, to welcome them into our home, meet some practical needs, and ultimately share Christ with them. And I often hear some of you say, how how can I serve my city? This is a way in which you can serve your city and your neighbors. You're serving the nations by uh, inviting these internationals into your home. So I encourage you uh, to find, seek out Brian and Kylie after the service. They're going to provide lots of different ways in which you can get involved in that this next uh, semester or academic year. All right? So we are in the parables, and I'm not a mathematician, but I did do some counting this week, and there's about 40 parables in the Gospels. So we're going to start this morning with trivia. Trivia, Sunday morning at the Vine. Here's my question. Shout it out if you know it. What subject of all these parables, what subject dominated nearly a third of all of Jesus' parables? What was the subject that dominated his parables? Shout it out. What do you think? You're way better than first service. Money. Absolutely. (laughs) I don't know what that means, but... (laughs) You're more awake. Yes, good. Money. Jesus talked more about money than heaven and hell combined. Jesus talked more about money than prayer. In fact, Jesus talked more about money than any other subject. And that really should not be too surprising for us to hear, right? That money should have a dominant role in the teaching of Jesus since it has such a dominant role in each one of our lives. Statistics say that if you were to live to 85 years old, you would have spent nearly 50 years of your waking time thinking about money, which means that you would spend more time thinking about money than not thinking about money, such as how to get more of it, how to obtain it, how to spend it, how to save it, how to get even more of it, how to invest it, how to borrow it, and yes, how to get even more of it. Martin Luther taught there are three conversions necessary, the conversion of the heart, the mind, and the purse. This morning, Jesus uses a story that we'll look at to challenge our attitude towards money, leading us to a question as we will close this morning. If, do we worship money as a God, or do you worship God with your money? Do you worship money as a God, or do you worship God with your money? Let's pray and invite Jesus to be our teacher this morning. Lord, we need your help. We pray for your spirit to uh, unlock scripture to to our hearts this morning. Would you unlock our hearts to your word? 
We need your help, Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible via mobile or, or print, I encourage you to grab one in the back. We're going to be in our text. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weighty parable, so I encourage you to put your eyeballs into this story this morning with me. Luke chapter 16, Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you have this Bible, it's page 568. It's the parable of the dishonest manager. And I will be completely honest. Up until this past month when I knew I was going to do a parable, I had always avoided this parable uh, because it's, it's really quite confusing and challenging. You open any commentary and like the first words are, this is the most difficult teaching by Jesus. Uh, so this morning, let's press in together, ask for his help that we might understand that we have ears to hear what he was teaching. So let's first listen as I read this story of the dishonest manager. Luke 16. He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their house. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, it's silence, maybe because we are speechless by some of the things going on in our text, or maybe because you're just listening. (laughs) But my inside world is screaming out, what is going on in this parable? I have burning questions. Did this master really just commend a servant that just defrauded him? Is Jesus building out a spiritual principle from this seemingly sinful behavior for us to follow? We have questions on this text, right? But as a masterful storyteller, Jesus often taught in unexpected and shocking ways, and certainly this might be one of them. It is one of them. So as we get going, I want to first ask a question of who was Jesus' audience? And when we look at any parable, this should always be our first question because it helps unlock the meaning. 
And it's very plain for us this morning. In verse 1, it says, He also said to the disciples. So we know that this parable, Jesus was talking to his disciples. And if, it was, if it's true for his disciples then, what he's saying is also true for us today. This lesson that he has for us, as we will see, is for us who are Christians. But that's not all who was in his audience. You have to skip down to verse 14. There's somebody eavesdropping. Verse 14 says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. So although we see that the primary audience, the conversation Jesus is having is to his disciples, a secondary but I think a very important piece to this puzzle of understanding is that the Pharisees were there eavesdropping. And I don't think this is lost on Jesus. He knows they are there and listening. So before we get to the lesson of what we can walk away with from this story, let's just dive in a little bit to the story itself. So you ready? Here we go. Verse 1. He also said to the disciples, Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So as it was common in this day, wealthy landowners hired managers, or perhaps your version says stewards, and these stewards were hired to live on the estate, to manage the daily affairs, and the, the land, the owner's land, the crops, the assets, the liabilities. This steward would possess full authority to act on behalf of the owner. And in our story, we see that this steward, this trusted overseer of his master's estate, betrays that trust, right? Irresponsibly squandering away the owner's assets. And we saw, see, as, as this information comes back to this absentee landowner, he calls, he demands that this uh, steward comes in front of him. And we see in verse 2, and the owner says, calls to him and says to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And we see that the steward offers no reply of, of, uh, of argument. He doesn't try to uh, debate the fact that he's been unfaithful in his stewardship. He knows he's guilty, right? Yet the owner, he doesn't really say get out right now. He says put the accounts in order and then you're done. And so in a sense, there's a little bit of time. Perhaps it's a two-week notice like get these accounts in order and then you're fired. And it's, it's during this period that the steward begins to have this realization This reality of what's about to happen to him, it it dawns upon the steward. See, this in verse 3. He's talking to himself. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? He he realized, I'm done. I'm on the streets. I'm fired. How am I going to take care of my family? How are we going to eat? Where will we live? What will I do? He says, I'm too frail to dig, and I'm too proud to beg. And it's in this thinking that he he gets an idea, he hatches a plan, and he realizes he needs friends, and specifically friends who will owe him big time. So look at verse 4. He realizes that these friends would be the debtors to his master. And he says, if I could discount these debts, then they will be obligated to me. Right? And and especially in Jewish society, as it is in our society, if somebody does something for you, you do something for them, right? Right? And if somebody did a huge favor for you, you're going to do a big favor in return. 
So look at verse 5. The steward, he summons, he summons the master's debtors one by one. And this is indicating there's more than two. We have two in this story, but there's probably many that are coming. And he says to the first one, how much do you owe my master? And this debtor, this guy says, a hundred measures of oil. And, and in my research, I, I, realized, I, I learned that 100 measures of oil would have been the amount of oil, it says, that would have been pressed out of 150 olive trees. And that would have been three years' worth of, of working, of wage. And so that's significant debt, that this guy owes three years of wage to this landowner. It's significant debt. But look at what the steward does in verse 6, the last half of it. He says to him who owes this this, this bill, he says, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So the steward, he just slashes completely in half this debt. And now it's down to a year and a half. Look at verse 7, the next one. It's, it's even a larger debt. Verse 7, he says to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And a hundred measures of wheat would have taken a hundred acres of land to produce, and it would have been ten years of salary for the average worker. And the steward says in the last half of seven, take your bill and write 80. So in a sense, he's saying, I'm going to eliminate your debt by 20%. I'm going to cut off two years of what you owe. That's significant. And what's happening here, the steward, he's just, he's embezzling his master out of his rightful income. He's wrongfully using his authority, his position, to reduce the debt in order that he might be the primary benefactor of these favors. He's securing a pathway out of his imminent hopelessness. But here then in our story comes the real shocker. The real surprise is in the ending of this parable. In verse 8, says the master, and, and as I read this, realize that Jesus is talking to his disciples. And so the disciples, imagine what their reaction would be as, 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 they re, as, they, as they're in their minds, they're probably thinking a certain thing that the master's going to do, right? So the steward has just embezzled, and now the master's going to do something. But notice, in verse 8, he says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And, and I think, like us, the disciples, when, when it reaches this climax of the story, uh, they would have assumed that the steward would be cast out into darkness. You know, that punish him, yeah, we, we would understand that. Uh, beat him publicly, sure, we get that, but commend him, that's the surprise. And I think it probably bothers us a little bit, right? Because we have an innocent guy getting ripped off by a selfish, self-centered, lazy employee. But look closely at our text in verse 8. What is the owner praising or commending the steward for? The owner does not praise him for being wasteful or for being irresponsible or for being a theft. The steward is, is praised because he had acted shrewdly. Meaning the steward had astutely acted in a, canner, a canny and clever way. He had been aware of his circumstances and perceived his way out. And this is what the owner recognizes. The deafness, the quick thinking, the unflustered action of the steward. 
it's kind of like this, like if, if you're in a competition, I think of chess a lot because this happens to me all the time, where a player makes a move and it's just, it's game over. They've bested me. It, it, it's always a surprise to me that the game has all of a sudden come to an end, but it's over. They beat me. I can't do anything about it. And that's just what has happened in our story. The owner realizes the brilliance of this move, and he commends him saying, well done, good job. And, and think about it. The owner is in a tough position because he can't default on this generosity extended by the steward on his behalf to his debtors. He's stuck. He can only say to the steward, well, well, well played. You know, as the disciples are wrestling through this shocking end of the story, just as we're wrestling through it this morning, trying to make sense of it, Jesus, in the latter half of verse 8, I think delivers even a sharper blow to their ears and our ears. He says this in 8b. He says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I think that can be entirely confusing. What is Jesus getting at? What is he after? It's something that I, I have consistently been wrestling with. So let's just start by clarifying terms. The sons of this world would be a reference to people of this world, unbelievers who do not, who are unrepentant and do not believe in God. And sons of light would be a reference to the people who do believe in God, who have repented and entered into relationship with Jesus. And here's what's helped me in understanding a bit about what's happening in this passage. It's just a step away from the story. Step away from the story and just realize that Jesus is telling a story about a man who suddenly becomes aware of his future. Now, most of us, if I was to ask, we're not aware of our future. Darren, what are you doing on Thursday evening of this week? Maybe you know, but, but most of we have no idea what the future holds for us, right? Most of us aren't sitting here in our seats saying, in two weeks, I know I'm going to get fired. Another week, I know I'm going to be on the streets. And then another week, we don't know our future. We don't get that information. Yet this steward in our story, he's handed this information. He knows the unfolding of events that is soon to happen in his life. And with that knowledge of the future, he begins to live differently. And we see this difference. A man who had been lazy, who had been fired for mismanagement, suddenly is transformed into a shrewd individual who prepares and secures his future. What was the difference? He knew his future. And I think from this perspective, uh, the lesson that Jesus has for his disciples then, for us today, I think it becomes alive. In a sense, Jesus is saying, I wish the children of light, my children, who profess to be Christians would live that way. Because Christian, you know your future. Yet often, myself included, we live as though this world was all there was to offer. And for those of this age, for unbelievers, they always will and always have leverage resources to manipulate outcomes to gain earthly security and for comfort, and to find identity in their possessions, because this world is all there is for them. It's how the world operates. And when it comes to the working out for a temporary future, sinners are far more shrewd in stewarding their time and money than saints are, than Christians are, 
and the spiritual working out of their eternal future. But this, I think Jesus is saying, should not be so. I think this is the point of the story, that if this wicked, sinful steward used his earthly possessions to secure a temporary and fleeting future, how much more should you, Christian, steward your earthly possessions to purposes that are lasting and eternal? Like the gift of knowledge given the steward in the story, we as Christians know our future. Scripture, as we read, it tells us our story. It gives us our identity. There's no surprise to what will happen. Our hope and our future is in the person and work of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, if only my children would remember how this all ends, they would live differently. Jesus is challenging his disciples to live through the lens of eternity. And it's hard. Because these earthly possessions, they're, they're, they're not, this isn't, this isn't our identity. They're a means to glorify God. So let's stop wasting our time on all this stuff that provides, that we think will provide something. Let's press in to the lasting things of eternity. And we need to examine our hearts and ask hard questions that, do you, do I, do I, work as hard to steward my material wealth for eternal purposes as I do for my temporary purposes? And that's the question. Do you live with an eternal perspective? So how, how do we move into that direction? And Jesus is going to give us some helps. He's going to give us three specific applications or lessons that we can, we can steward our resources for eternal purposes. We'll see that one of those ways relates to others, one relates to ourselves, and one relates to God. Three lessons. One relates to others, one relates to ourselves, and one relates to God. We'll talk about each one, and we'll be done. So first, one relates to others. Look with me in verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, I have reread and read this verse about 25,000 times over the course of this month, trying to understand what this is about. Because it kind of seems that Jesus is okay, first of all, with like unrighteous wealth, maybe like Robin Hood, and then to like use it to leverage friendships and relationships for your, for your favors or whatever. So I think we need to step back. What is unrighteous wealth? And there's various interpretations of this passage. But I think what best hits it is that Jesus qualifies wealth in general as unrighteous in the sense that it belongs to our fallen and corrupt world. It's an element of how we, we, we work in our society. Money belongs to our system of life. And therefore, it's, it's unrighteous. And Jesus, he does instruct to take this money, to take this wealth, and to make friends. But notice what type of friends he's instructing you to make. He says, make friends so they will receive you into eternal dwellings. He's not saying go out and buy earthly friends for your own good, but to go and buy eternal or heavenly friends, meaning steward your money. Steward, position your resources and money in such a way uh, that, that others 
might be one to Christ. And that when you go to heaven, when you are received into heaven, there they are welcoming you in to eternal, into eternity because you helped them get there. In other words, generously invest your time and money in gospel ministries so that others may hear and believe in the person of Jesus. Now, I'm a graduate of Moody Bible Institute, and I've never talked about D.L. Moody. I apologize, sir. But he is a fascinating biography read if you've never read about his life, a man passionate about living out his faith. And one of my favorite quotes from him goes like this, the devil likes to tempt lazy men, but lazy men tempt the devil. Nothing to do with our sermon. But D.L. Moody, if you know anything about his life, was passionate about, uh, especially young adults and children, receiving biblical uh, education and teaching. He started um, several schools and academies to to do that. He was very instrumental in Sunday school uh, in in helping develop that program to to a lot of what we know it to be today. And and there's the famous stories of D.L. Moody on Sunday mornings in Chicago where he lived where he would go around town on, on a pony offering candy and pony rides to get children to come to his Sunday school classes. And that might sound a little silly to our ears, but D.L. Moody recognized that candy, which is just an element of our world, of our fallen world, that he could leverage that resource, that he could steward that possession, this really old, unrighteous wealth, just part of our world, he could steward that uh, into uh, gospel proclamation for kids to come to faith in Christ. Now, he, he could take all the candy, not that he would, he could take all the candy and ponies and just use them for self-enjoyment, right? Or you, you could substitute candy and ponies with just the wealth, the things that, you, that draw you in. We could accumulate and hoard it for self-enjoyment, or we could invest it and spend it for gospel et- eternity for proclamation. And that's what Jesus is saying. So make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. And I find it fascinating that we can use the wealth of this world and apply it to produce a heavenly reward. I think as we all know, we we, we can't take our money with us when we die, right? Money will fail. Our text says that. It says our money will fail. But you know what? You can send it ahead of you through investing in gospel ministries. The choice is yours. Use your wealth, use your possessions to pad a few years of comfort and ease at the end of your temporary fleeting life or steward this money, this possessions to invest in winning others into the kingdom of God. And so I think as we think about our wealth and our our possessions and our stewardship of that wealth, Uh, we have to ask a couple questions. And one question that I was very convicted on this week was um, just a simple question of, if Jesus set my monthly budget, what would be different? What budget lines would be uh, turned around if Jesus set my monthly budget? For for if we're his steward, it's his wealth, it's not mine. And and I've been asking myself, uh, Jesus, how do you want me to spend your money? And when you approach it in that lens, instead of what do I want to do with my money, it's different. It's Jesus, what do you want me to do with your money? Are you wisely 
leveraging your unrighteous wealth to win others into God's kingdom. Principle one. The second principle is is money and, and our attitude towards self. Look at verse 10 with me. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. I think what this is saying is that circumstances don't determine faithfulness. Character does. We hear often people say, if I had more, I'd give more, but that's not true. It doesn't matter how much you have. The widow gave everything, and people who have everything often give nothing. It's not about the circumstances. This isn't about being poor. It's not about being rich. It's about being a faithful steward to what God has entrusted to you. Jesus says elsewhere, where your heart is is where your treasure goes, whether you have a little or whether you have a lot. So who are you right now? Not if you had more, not if you had less. Who are you right now? The test is, are you faithful or are you not faithful? To see it conversely, look at verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If this is you, unfaithful, notice the implications to your eternal reward. If you've not been faithful to the stewardship, why would God entrust true and lasting riches to you? And perhaps some of this conversation becomes uncomfortable for some of us. But look at verse 12. It says, and if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? You see, this verse is implying that that our money, these these earthly possessions, they're not even ours. Like the steward that Jesus talks about in this story, you, Christian, are stewards of God's estate here on this earth. I mean, we don't even own the things we think we own. Everything we have already belongs to God. Scripture is full of this reasoning. In the Old Testament, in Haggai, the prophet, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The psalmist declares, O Lord, the earth is full of your possessions. And we could keep reading slide after slide. God owns everything. Everything you and I have is a stewardship from God. And this view is starkly different from the sons of this age, from those who do not believe in God. For if you do not believe in God, you live in just pure indulgence and and hoarding because it's all about getting as much as you can so that you can live in the way in which you want. But the Christian perspective is different for we live with accountability, a, a source of accountability. Everything we have is a stewardship. It belongs to God. And he asks that we would steward it for his glory. I'm right here with you. I could, we could buy endless uh, comforts and earthly possessions on this side of heaven. And and it's tempting. But you will impoverish your eternal future reward. For the true riches are over there. What you really want to own is the eternal and lasting treasure that God gives to his faithful stewards. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, We look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. The things that are seen are temporary. The things that are not seen are eternal. So do we recognize this morning that your possessions, your wealth, no matter how rich 
for how poor is a gift from God to be stewarded faithfully in ways pleasing to the Lord. And then finally, money and our attitude towards God. Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And the word, verb, the verb serve here in our text is really a softer way of saying slavery. This is bond slavery. And in slavery, sadly, we know that the master owns the slave, right? Making it impossible for a slave to serve two masters. He only has one master. So just as it's impossible for a slave to serve two masters, you, Christian, it's impossible for you to serve two masters. You cannot serve Jesus and money. It cannot be done. That's what the text is saying. Either you're going to serve God, meaning you're going to take your wealth and invest it in kingly purposes, or you're going to serve money and, and spend it on yourself, on this life. You can't do both. You have to decide. And so to, to bring this general principle a little bit more home, I, I just have three questions. And I, I encourage you even to write these down or, or put them in your phone to talk about with your spouse or family, uh, to ponder these things. These are really good questions. And the first one is this. Do you worship your money or do you worship with your money? You see, if, you're, if you worship your money, you're, you're going to be greedy and stingy and you're not going to live generously. But if you worship with your money, you're going to seek to be shrewd, to be faithful, to be a steward and a generous giver for kingdom purposes. Do you worship your money or do you worship with your money? And secondly, we all struggle with this in different ways, but how do you worship money in a sinful way? How do you worship money in a sinful way? Some of us, I know, we work too much because we worship money. We, we bring work on vacation, we bring it home and avoid family because we worship money. And it's not a sin, hear me, it's not a sin to make money, it's not a sin to invest money, to be wise with money, it, it's very much a part of our world. But it's a sin to worship money. It's a heart issue, and that's what Jesus is after this morning. You worship money in a sinful way. And that really leads us to that third question that I hope you take time to consider is what deep-seated idols fuel your worship of money? I think we probably all have an idol here. What deep-seated idol fuels your worship of money? Some of us worship status, to, to live in that neighborhood or to have that house or have that, those certain kinds of clothes or that certain kind of car because we crave the world to know that I'm accomplished, I've, I've achieved. And it's not a sin to have nice things or enjoy nice things, but if the underlying ro- root motivation of the heart is status rather than resting in the dignity and worth and value of the grace of Jesus, then you have an idol and you need to repent. Others of us, we, maybe we worship comfort. We want to use our money to make life easy and not be inconvenienced. But Jesus says to pick up uh, our cross and to follow him. He doesn't say it's going to be comfortable. And to be a disciple means that we're going to be uncomfortable and inconvenienced. For some of us, it's, it's security. We use our money to secure our lives and our, our, uh, for those purposes. For others, it's fame. We want people to know us. We, we want people to love us. We want people uh, to, in a sense, glorify who we are. And we, we, we use our money to that end. 
What deep-seated idol fuels your worship of money? Calvin said this, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. So ultimately, Vine family, choosing to honor God with your money is to say earthly wealth is not your master. There's been three principles this morning. Money and our attitude towards others. Am I, am I using it wisely um, to bring others into the kingdom? And secondly, am I, our, our money and our attitude towards our own hearts. Am I, am I being a faithful steward to what God has entrusted to me? And then lastly, our attitude, money, and, and with God himself. Do we worship money as a God or do we worship God with our money? And I want to read something that A.W. Pink wrote. It's, it's a little lengthy, but, but hold, hang with me. I think it's, it's well written. He says this, These two are diametrically opposed, God and money. One commands you to walk by faith, the other to walk by sight. One to be humble, the other to be proud. One to set your affection on the things above, the other to set them on the things that are on the earth. One to look at the things that are unseen and eternal, the other to look at the things that are seen and temporary. One to have your conversation in heaven, the other to cleave to the dust. One to be careful for nothing, the other to be all anxiety. One to be content with such things as you have, the other to enlarge your desires. One to be ready to distribute, the other to withhold. One to look at the things of others, and the other to look at only one's own things. One to seek happiness in the creator, and the other to seek happiness in the creature. Is it not plain? You cannot serve two such masters. And it's exactly this idea that pulls the narrative back into verse 14. Remember verse 14? The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus Lovers of money do not want to hear messages like this. This is all about the love of money. And if you want to follow Jesus, you cannot be a lover of money. For the Pharisee, this was something they could not give up to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus simply means you forsake the riches of this world and you live with an eternal perspective. And that eternal perspective profoundly shapes your attitude concerning money. And I want you to walk away knowing that Jesus never, he's not commanding this for any other reason than to bring you into joy. Jesus, we never see him taking up an offering. We're not going to pass the plate. But understand that God would, would consider that you have nothing that's not already his. Everything you have, God has entrusted to you to be faithful, to be shrewd in the way in which you steward that for his glory. And that just kind of circles back around to ultimately we must believe that Jesus is a better God than money. And we have to ask ourselves, do we believe that this morning? In money, I, I, we, we often look in our money for an identity, Jesus can only give us a meaningful and lasting identity. In money, we often look for comfort, but only Jesus provides true and lasting comfort. In money, we often look for security, 
but only Jesus can grant to us eternal security. I want you to believe that Jesus is a better God than money. God is a giver. He's not a taker. He's generous. He's not greedy. And in his love and mercy, he paid your debt. He is our greatest treasure. Be thou my vision, the the hymn says this, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance now in all ways. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. And the psalmist declares, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Vine family, may we push to refuse the temptation to love money. And I ask you as my family to help me as we help each other refuse to be lovers of money, but to worship God with our money. Jesus, we thank you for this incredible parable, the story that teaches us so much of um, rooting out idolatries and how we might place our hope and security in money. Lord, I pray that you'd be our help this morning. Would you use each other and each other's lives to, to be our help and encouragement to sharpen each other in how we view the use of our money and earthly possessions. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning that does not see you, Jesus, as their greatest treasure. Lord, I pray that you would reveal that to them in your grace and mercy. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we have life, that we have eternal life, that we may know you, the God of our universe, and that you are our greatest treasure. In your name we pray, amen.